0: nvbdc.org It was established to certify both service disabled and veteran owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today... Uh, Two PhDs, a couple of doctors who have written on a new book that's out, Military Veteran Employment, A Guide for the Data-Driven Leader by Nathan Anspan, PhD, and Kristen Sabo, PhD. Uh, Nathan and Kristen, welcome to Veterans Radio.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, it's
0: great to be here. Well, Nathan is a senior research psychologist with the Military Civilian Transition Office at the Department of Defense. His research has focused on improving civilian employment opportunities for returning service members and the psychosocial benefits that employment provides for wounded warriors and uh, injured veterans. Uh, Kristen Sable, PhD, brings us a little bit different uh, experiences because she's an Army veteran. Uh, she's an industrial organizational psychologist and she's worked extensively across academic and defense nonprofit private sectors as a researcher Um, and she was deployed to Afghanistan in 2013 she's uh, been or is an adjutant professor at Georgetown University Um, both of these folks completed uh, doctorate degrees Uh, Nathan's is from Cornell university school of labor relations and Kristen's is from i had it here a minute ago um, uh, your doctorate degrees from the university of south florida Um, and you have also been uh, a 2019 president george w bush institute of veteran leadership program scholar which is a uh, quite quite an honor as well so we're glad to have both of you on the program today We often talk on Veterans Radio with folks who are interested in hiring more veterans, but we also run into situations where I don't really think the corporation or that employer or um, employment manager kind of really knows what they're working for. So I think uh, this book is particularly helpful in that regards. But uh, Nathan, maybe start with telling us what the audience for Military veteran employment, this particular book is for. Who's the audience?
2: Sure. And just to clarify, um, I do work for the DoD Military Civilian Office, but um, the lawyers there would want me to specify that. I wrote the book on my private time, oh. you know, as a private citizen and doing this phone call um, outside of my DoD role um, and appearing on the show. Just to clarify, I'm in my civilian uh, writing capacity now. And for the book that we wrote, it is geared for human resource executives, business leaders, um, the residents of the C-suite, the CEO, and other senior business leaders, um, up from there all the way down to the hiring manager and individual managers who work with uh, veterans as their employees. Uh, With that being said, we're geared for that audience, certainly veterans themselves and their family members could read this to help understand um, how they can do better in the workforce as well. So while we may talk to the hiring manager about reading resumes, I think it would be of value to read that chapter and understand what to say in your resume and what that person at the other end of the interviewing table uh, may be thinking and some of the concerns that they may have. Um, Because what we've realized is the military can train service members to to prepare to leave the military and equip them with all these skills. Uh, But if companies don't appreciate what the members can bring to the table, don't know how to read veteran resumes, how to retain them, um, there will still be problems with the employment, and particularly underemployment. We may have a low employment rate, but we really would want to see companies gain the full benefits of the skills that the members got while they were in uniform.
0: Well, and there are about 200,000 service members who leave and go into the civilian world for work every year. So this is a, you know, every year, this is a new problem for a whole new group of um, veterans trying to seek employment. Kristen, um, if you would talk a little bit about how the book is laid out and how how the chapters got developed and the various authors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the book is written by experts and in many cases, international experts in the field um, on each topic. And so you'll find that most of the chapters have someone who is that level of expertise um, in terms of the research and practice of those topics as an author. And then they'll also have an author that perhaps is a veteran themselves or has worked as a consultant in civilian capacity with the military. And we've really married up those different perspectives of expertise and experience to bring forward a book that presents best practices that are based in evidence. And what's so critical about making sure things are based in evidence is you certainly would not want to go to a doctor who simply said, well, this worked yesterday, we'll do it again today, right? That's practice-based. We want evidence-based in terms of, hey, we've looked at the research, and this is the thing that works the most frequently for the majority of the population. It's not going to work for everyone. But these are the things that are going to most frequently achieve the best outcomes for individuals. And so we have chapters on branding and communications, for instance, on misconceptions of breaking past some of those stereotypes, on dealing with, you know, when you're in the National Guard or reserves, that's a whole different ballgame in terms of what that experience looks like for individuals. Or there's a certain um, duality to that life experience where they have to jump between these two identities that sometimes conflict. Um, and frankly, when we surveyed the field, there was there was not a chapter in any of the books that are already out there on veterans employment that addressed National Guard and Reserve, which is unfortunate. Um, so we have a chapter on that. We have a chapter on retaining veterans because, you know, hiring is certainly part of the battle. But at the end of the day, we need to get people jobs that are sustaining that actually build to careers because um, the goal is achieving a meaningful career. And then also, you know, focusing on military spouses, the family unit. Um, And so we have a variety of chapters such as that throughout written by experts that can really speak in detail to what's going to work best um, and also bring forward kind of what that looks like in practice.
0: Well, you said this is evidence based uh, throughout the book, and I really noticed that um, we often hear from employers who want to hire veterans and who say, well, veterans perform better um and you there's actually a provision in the book that says 60 percent of employers say veterans perform better than their other employees as they start out but there's also this problem of underemployment and they leave early so we're going to talk a little bit about that but i found the book really resonating with me uh, because of a number of the interviews and talks we've had before. But you you brought up messaging and branding and how to, how to hire a, a veterans, which I think a lot of companies struggle with. And that's Chapter 3 of your book. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that?
1: Certainly. So I think when we look at messaging and branding, what's really critical from an employer's standpoint is knowing their value proposition. Why are they looking to target and hire veterans or military spouses or any, you know, member of that military unit, if you will, on the military family. And they need to know that up front in terms of the purpose of that action before they go and actually target that population. And and that's really a best practice for targeting any population from a sourcing and recruitment standpoint um, and a retention standpoint. And then once that is achieved, then it's going to be much easier to find that right fit between the individual being hired and the company hiring them. Um, And so from a branding and communication standpoint, we know with the military community, it it is very much well-connected. It's a very well-networked community. And so employers really have to understand that they need to go to the community. They can't expect the community to come to them in many ways. Um, It's a community that talks, right? So branding is really critical. Um, that value proposition of, hey, this company is a good place to work, word spreads quickly in this network. Um, as veterans know, right, they talk, they communicate, they stay in touch, it becomes your family. And so it's really important that companies recognize that this is a little bit of a different group to work with in terms of recruitment. In terms of branding, in terms of retention, because it's a tight knit group that relies on each other, not just during service, but extends into that period after service. And that's the one thing that's guaranteed when you join the military is that you're going to have another career. Um, It is a time limited career in the military, and so you're going to go on to something else in the future. And while you're serving, you have to be mindful of that, and equally, employers have to be mindful of that because. Oftentimes, they're looking for people who might be seeking employment in two years, right, um, and the employer is used to hiring someone the next week. And so some of those timeline discrepancies also have to be attended to from an employer's perspective and also the veteran's perspective when they're looking for work um, in terms of that branding and communication that goes on.
0: Well, I thought the chapters really helped sharpen the point and focus things like how do you how do you message to veterans why it's so important and w- one of the uh, chapters deals with employer misconceptions and veteran misconceptions um, and and again you have an expert writing on this with a lot of evidence-based but uh nathan why don't you talk to us a little bit about how this chapter f- uh, sharpens the point on misconceptions going both ways
2: One of the problems that we see with the employment situation is that there are two different camps. There's a big military-civilian divide with a gap. Uh, A small percentage of Americans have any connection to the military whatsoever. It's amplified because military service tends to run in families. So we're getting into two communities with very little overlap. And with that kind of overlap, misperceptions can easily develop. That someone could be sitting there wanting to hire someone who has never talked to anyone, met anybody from the military. Conversely, the veteran has lived in what they call America's greatest gated communities on military bases, surrounded by other military families, and can drop acronyms left and right that the the civilian on the other side of the table doesn't understand. And starting from there, there can be misconceptions developing because they don't have the interactions. Um, so frequently the military mem- the non-military member doing the interviewing may not understand what the person did if they only will talk acronyms, or if they are educated a bit and they know that that 11 Bravo that they just mentioned meant that they were infantry, uh, the civilian hiring manager may not find a match in their organization. They may think that infantry means you run around the field and carry guns and blow things up, which is not untrue, but we cite the research that's been done that shows that even an entry level position, an infantryman has a lot of skills such as leadership, planning, logistics, um, coping under pressure, um, which a civilian may be misconceived that they don't have all these skills. Conversely, the veteran on the other side, because they were surrounded by people who are excelling in all this training and all these skills, they don't realize that they have these unique characteristics that are in high demand in the civilian workforce, um, but not highly represented among civilians. Um, So we have to really let the hiring manager know to look out for these things, to learn how to communicate, to talk through the acronyms, uh, to become educated on what the military is like. And we talk about um, how the military will recruit and train and develop people. We looked at just the tuition assistance that gets offered to the members, um, puts DOD almost up there with the University of California and the University of Texas in terms of an educating institution. Um, that they come in with all this training, all these experiences, and learn how to ask the questions as the recruiter and to describe them and break through the misconceptions as the veteran.
0: Yeah, and, and I really think that there's uh, misconceptions on both sides of the table. Um, I, I think the veteran says, well, you know, I, I listed my MOS. What more do I need to tell you? And without realizing the, the the civilian employer maybe it's the hiring manager maybe it's the company owner really has no idea what that is about except maybe in the most general of terms so they both kind of approach this with uh, misconceptions and and there's a big misconception i give you guys credit for doing a chapter on hiring and employing wounded or and disabled veterans to to deal with that uh, set of misconceptions direct and and in particular that the author of that the authors of that chapter sort of set out a stereotype talked about what the facts are and then supported that uh, those facts and really attacked some of the concerns coming out of you know, veterans from Afghanistan um, who may be seen by employers as being uh, a little damaged. Um, Kristen, do you want to sort of take on that challenge of Chapter 7 and talk about uh, what uh, you were trying to accomplish as you were having this written up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important when we talk about veterans, we acknowledge the service and sacrifice that was given, right, by themselves and also We can't forget their families who have equally sacrificed in very unique and distinct ways. Um, And oftentimes without really having the choice to make that sacrifice. And with that, though, comes the stereotypes that are presented in media, that are, are presented in various efforts, in communication efforts to, you know, garner support. But that can also be damaging if it's perpetually an image of a wounded warrior. Because at the end of the day, that's an individual who happened to have an experience happen to them. What we actually find is that when we look at veterans and we look at people who serve, their incidence of, say, mental health um, disorders or issues are actually the same as the general population. But that's not the message that gets out there through the media. It's oftentimes, oh, a veteran has PTSD. Well, you know what? No, that's not actually the case. When we look across the board of those who are serving, it's it's around 20% might have some sort of mental health impairment. But that does not define them, right? We all have things that we struggle with, right? Whether it be your hip hurting or a mental health concern or you are, you know, missing a limp. These are all the things that we have in our lives, but they don't need to define us. And I think so often when we think about veterans, we let that disabled person image come first before the rest of the identity as a person. And that's something that we've really worked over the last decade in terms of national strategic efforts to move past, to shift that persona. And equally, employers need to hold themselves responsible as to, again, going back to that value proposition, why are you hiring the veteran? You're hiring the veteran because this is an incredible person who has not only gained experiences that have made them resilient and have incredible skills, but have also been through a lot of training, far more training than you'd see them experience in a civilian world. Um, leadership training, specific skills training, training on how to cope and be more resilient with stress, right? Those are very unique skill sets that you don't necessarily find encouraged um, and explicitly trained on and upskilled in people who are not serving in first responder communities. Um, and so when we think about veterans, we really want to make sure that we are mindful of that individual, of the experiences and the benefits of that experience. And then we're not perpetuating this this myth of the disabled veteran, if you will, as woe well is me," if you will. As yeah,
0: well. yeah, it's really um, a, it is really a myth, and 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 mm-hmm. gets portrayed on TV and cable way too much. And 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 I actually run into people who say, "Well, veterans, uh, you know, only only the uneducated and the poor are in the military, so be, you know they wouldn't be good." Job candidates because they're not educated, and nothing could be further from the truth. So I really appreciate that you sort of tackle that problem in, in the book, as well as the the issue that while veterans are conditioned to follow orders and they lack any initiative in the workforce, and again, there's no there's no data, there's no evidence that supports those kind of stereotypes, are there, Kristen?
1: That's correct. In fact, we find veterans and military spouses actually fall in this category too are more educated oftentimes than comparable civilian populations. Um, And so that's another myth we have to break that because someone's enlisted, it doesn't mean that they don't have degrees. In fact, they may very well have a PhD. Um, And so that's something that we have to actively make sure as a community of veterans um, and also on the employer end to acknowledge that everyone is an individual. to look at the resume, to understand for military spouses, there may be gaps in the resume. It's not because they're not a qualified candidate. It's because they were moving every two years to support their spouse that was in the military.
0: Well, let me jump. Um, equally- yeah, let me no, jump. Yeah. Let me jump to that then, because I was going to hold this till the end, but you've brought up military spouses a couple of times and there's a chapter on military spouses in here. Um, Talk to us why it was important to include that in this book, Military Veteran Employment, A Guide for the Data-Driven Leader. Why did you want to include this particular issue and cover it so well?
1: Yeah, so military spouses are an area that we need to focus on. I'll put it that way. Um, Strategically, we have very much focused on the veteran. Oftentimes, the veteran can't serve without a support system around them. One of the biggest forms of support is going to be the partner that's in their life, right? Whether it be someone they have formally married or someone they have not yet. Um, And so military spouses serve too. Military spouses see typically about five times the unemployment rate of the national average, which is significantly higher when you look at a comparable demographic to military spouses. Um, And they also report over 55% underemployment, which is a conversation we should be having too for both veterans and military spouses. And underemployment is simply, hey, I'm employed, but I'm not employed at the level that actually fully utilizes my skill set or makes me fulfilled. And so that's more perception based in terms of what that individual is experiencing. But when we talk about a group of people that have unemployment rates of five times that of the national average and also have higher degree attainment from the national average, there seems to be a pretty big discrepancy and gap going on there between what employers are actually looking for with spouses and not. Some of that comes from breaks in resume that can make it difficult to explain to an employer and, and may create misconceptions from the employer's perspective. Other times there's misconceptions from an employer's perspective that a military spouse is less likely to stay with their company. But the reality is, is that if that employer finds ways to accommodate the military spouse, such as giving them workplace flexibility of where they work, that military spouse is going to return that in loyalty to that company. And, and we're starting to see more and more data come out on this, but it's a conversation we need to continue having because they serve as well. And they might not always get the public accolades that they deserve, but the reality is is they're certainly contending with it in terms of their career. Um, and, and that means something for their mental health, for their families, um, and for their ability also to contribute.
0: No, I really appreciate that chapter. Uh... And, and uh, my wife is a retired military, and while I didn't have that particular problem of uh, employment, I know a lot of uh, sp- military spouses that do. And so uh, tackling that head-on to help uh, employers understand that a little bit is, uh, uh, I, I commend both of you for including such a chapter. And w- one chapter, Nathan, I want you to talk a little bit about is and I think in some regards maybe the most important, is retention of veteran employees. We often on Veterans Radio are talking to guys who have, you know, it took them one, two, or three jobs uh, in the civilian world before they really hit the one that they wanted to stick with, and some of that's them and some of that's the employer. So talk about this issue of uh, retention of veteran employees and uh, what information you're trying to communicate in the book.
2: Sure. And again, as we do throughout the book, we really pitch the argument not as charity or patriotic, but why this should be a business decision. And when it comes to retention, the typical analysis is that replacing an employee will cost a company between 50 to 200% of that person's salary to put a new person in that job. Uh, so it behooves the company to make the right hire and to encourage and motivate and retain that employee so that they don't lose that investment that they make. And particularly with a veteran's population, like you said, um, it's comparable to students just getting out of college that they may not know exactly what they want and they'll take the job that comes along because they have to pay the bills, etc. and it doesn't work out. So within a year or so, they'll leave the job and try something else. Um, the issue with the veteran is te- typically they're older, they tend to have a family, so they may have less, less ability to just drop a job to get something else. So it really becomes critical that they make the match and find the right job in the right organization and stay on, and then they can contribute and really develop their career. So it's, it's retention, but also starts at the beginning with recruiting, that if you know how to message, how to recruit properly, um, know how to interview, read your resumes, and hire, you're more likely to have that retention at the end. And it gets into some of the ways that companies have found are helpful uh, to be able to listen to their veteran employees, to be able to serve them. Um, address their concerns and keep them retained. Some of these would be uh, some of the uh, affinity groups that they develop where they'll have a veterans group and veterans supporting employees of the company. Uh, Frequently, the chair of this group will report directly to the CEO, and that's been very powerful. Um, They'll have mentoring networks. Um, They'll actually get um, their current veteran uh, employees to outreach to military bases to bring in the next wave of veteran employees. And we have good, good suggestions, um, but also data-driven uh, suggestions and ideas from the research. Um, a lot of people who wrote for the book are industrial organizational psychologists who understand um, the mind at work. And so we look at what kinds of potential culture clashes you may have as these military people come into your company. And citing from the science and the research, how do you address that? How do you provide mentoring um, to the members that they can understand, but also how the culture of the organization can help adapt and accept and bring in um, someone who may come from almost a completely different culture.
0: Well, I I thought uh, it was a great chapter with some great recommendations in it. And I want to cover one uh, additional chapter that, uh, again, you normally wouldn't see anybody write on, And that's uh, National Guard and Reservists. They sort of get uh, shortchanged in most discussions, uh, get sort of lumped in this broader category of veterans. And yet they have a a unique set of requirements, particularly on the employment side. Kristen, can you talk a little bit about that and, again, why it was included in, in the book?
1: Yeah, so I think one thing that is unique about this book is as we survey the landscape of other literature that's out there, National Garden Reservists, to your point, are not attended to as a distinct category, which is rather surprising because they are a completely distinct category in terms of the experience of work. Um, effectively, they are individuals with two jobs and two, really in many ways, full time jobs when you realize what National Garden Reservists need to be doing. It's not just one week. And a month, it's oftentimes checking emails and checking in throughout the month, and also that one week in a month. And so, it's it's really it takes a strong commitment and desire to serve, to be in the national garden reserves, and also maintain your employment. What we do find with national garden reserve is that sometimes they struggle to maintain their civilian employment because the demands of the garden reserve can mean that they choose to prioritize, you know, civilian employment or military service. Want to Over the other. Um, Other times it's just hard in terms of balancing those two work life realities. Um, As we know, garden reservists over the last two decades have been called upon to deploy at rates unprecedented. I mean, so that's very hard when you think about that experience of going into your civilian work for work job, right, for however many years you've been there. And then you're deploying the next day. You deploy for nine months and you come back in the very next day. You're supposed to show up just as a normal civilian in the workplace. Meanwhile, the week before you were in you know, Afghanistan or you were in Iraq or wherever else in Africa, right? That's a hard. That's really, really hard. Active duty get that transition period. They get a lot of transition services. Guard and Reserve don't get all of those services at the same level, but they do get some. But they might not have that same social support around them. And so when we look at employers, it's important that they don't just acknowledge the have-to's, if you will, that are required by law to support your national garden reservist, which by the way, I think many employers probably don't even understand all of that. It's incumbent on the garden reservist to understand it and call it out. I
0: can I can, I I can assure look- you they, they don't. As a lawyer who gets these questions, I know. I know. They, <laughs> the employers do not understand it. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, <laughs> and
1: and you know what, it's it's it is complicated and unless it affects you. it's somewhat understandable. Sometimes you don't know all the details until you need to, but they need to look past that to understand just the duality of that experience and how hard it is to maintain those two identities, maintain those two careers and, and continue service because it it is a big deal to continue that service. Um, And it's not easy. It's stressful. It requires different approaches to the workplace in terms of the culture and expectations of behaviors, um, and the commitments for the military, as we know, you don't always get a choice for what that commitment looks like, and and so that can be difficult too for guard and reservists in terms of pursuing their own civilian career and those dreams that are related to it.
0: I also think understanding reading this book, Military Veteran Employment: A Guide for the Data-Driven Leader, will help HR managers not only in the hiring but also in dealing with not only the guard and reservists but the other employees. Who don't understand why Joe gets to go off and do this and come back and gets his position or the additional work I have to pick up because of that? There's, I think there's a lot of uh, HR stresses uh, on the other employees when someone's in the guard and reserve, and employers and the reservists and uh, could do a better job of helping. Folks understand what their coworkers are going through, and I, I wasn't really addressed in here, but it made me think of that issue uh, as I went through the chapter. So, um, uh, again, another very good chapter that the two of you included in this. Um, can you, uh, Nathan? Maybe you can talk about this. How did the idea for this book come together, and and did it? Does it lead you to? Geez, we also need to go do this. You know, expand to the next uh, set of topics.
2: The idea for the book came together that Chris and I had worked together on many projects beforehand. We've done speaking engagements and symposiums. I had just finished another book, which was for clinicians, and the two of us began the conversation of realizing that, um, as I mentioned before, it really is dependent on the human resources department um, to understand and to really help make the transition process successful for the members. That's the companies that really need to get on it, and it's within the HR function. And then specifically, IO psychologists who work for the companies really would have the key because they would understand the data, they understand the psychology, the culture, and looking through the marketplace of books, we didn't see anything that met that need, that addressed that audience. We see a lot of books... um, give examples and best practices, Walmart does this, but unless you've got a million employees that might not work in your company, to really get at something that any company of any size um, would be able to utilize because it's based on science and research and psychology, um, we saw the need for it. We each had good contacts that we could call upon to write the different chapters, and we proposed the book to the publisher
0: and took it from there. Well, I guess that begs the next question. As you went through this, uh, Kristen, uh, uh, as an Army veteran, as as a uh, PhD, have you already decided, oh, geez, we need to go do something else to fill the next gap that we saw?
1: Well, there's always more to be done. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, Interestingly, Nate and I actually started this book prior to me transitioning out of active duty. And so this book has been an interesting experience for me because I've been living it. Um, I transitioned off of active duty while we were still working on the book. Um, I have had a child, all of these things in terms of my own personal transitions have happened during the course of writing this book. And so I can fully appreciate the reality of the topics we're talking about rather objectively. Right. Um, and I've also had the honor and privilege to write corporate strategies for veterans and military spouses in terms of how to bring that about. So I've, I've actually kind of gotten to do some trial and error with exactly what we talk about in the book to better understand the practice of it, because it's one thing to talk about it academically. It's another thing to do it. And I think we really tried to strike that chord and balance in the book to enable reality to exist for people. Um, I think, you know, sometimes that ivory tower of academics comes into play and it's hard to translate that to action. And, and so... That's something that we were particularly in tune to as we brought that, the book together. In terms of where it needs to go, um, I brought up military spouses several times, National Garden Reservists. Those are two areas that we do not have enough information on to speak in depth on what those actual experiences look like and where some of the needs are, to be quite honest. Um, and so those two chapters actually were a bit harder to write um, in terms of finding the right individuals to write them and what to put on paper because we just don't have as much information in terms of the research and the data for those populations. And so those are two areas I encourage people to start looking at more seriously. When it comes to veterans, we need to start understanding the nuances of being a veteran. Um, You know, I'm a female veteran. That experience has looked different for me than many of my male counterparts simply due to the environment that is the military. that, that impacts me, right? The stereotypes impact me differently. And so I think we need to consider how we're looking at different groups of veterans, um, how we're looking at people of different races and ethnicities, um, of different socioeconomic backgrounds. We know generally from research that those type different backgrounds and different identities and intersectionality impact people's experiences at work and how they perceive the world. We haven't dived into those topics much when we talk about veterans yet. It's so Stuck around, you know, the veterans experience as a whole. And so that I think is where the focus needs to go. I think it's going there now. Um, And there are more people than ever that are, are very engaged and passionate about pursuing those topics as well. And so I think it's a really exciting time in terms of both practice and research in this area.
0: Uh, Nathan Nathan with your indulgence I'd like to ask uh, the new mother we hear your baby cooing so she's a doll <laughs> I can tell or he's a doll um, but let with your indulgence Nathan let me ask uh, Kristen to can you can you tell us a little bit about how you a nice uh, girl like you ended up in the US Army and and yeah, and, and, and how question. you how you ended know. up as an officer and doing research psychologist <laughs> In the Army, which I would have never thought there even were such things. So can you give us a little bit of that background if you guys have time? Well,
1: fun little factoid. It is the second smallest MOS in the Army. So um, I would say that that's a common sentiment, but you didn't even know it existed.
2: <laughs> exactly. Um,
1: my recruiter did not either. That was an interesting experience. I So I did my PhD prior to joining. Um, when I was deciding what I was going to do next, I had done quite a bit of military research. I'm a military brat. I'm an Air Force brat myself. So it was an, not an unfamiliar territory. Um, And I just, I decided that, you know, service before self was really important to me. And the military has a timeline associated with it. It has age restrictions. So I couldn't do that later in life. I can do a lot of other things later in life. Um, And so it was a matter of how do I want to serve? And I chose the military. And frankly, the military does some really cool research when it comes to people and um, optimization, which is one of my focus areas of how we enabled people to be at their best during some of the most demanding situations, whether it be as leaders or within a culture or under stress. Um, and so the military gave me that opportunity. And so I joined the army. I, I got paid to run. So you can't complain about that. I was pretty great in my mind. Um, and I got to do some really cool stuff. I, I got to deploy and do research. And I've enabled to brief many of our very – senior most leaders in the military i just i've had phenomenal opportunity um to really do what i love which is bridging research and driving it and integrating it with policy and strategy at high levels for um large impact gains
0: well it's it states in the in your intro that uh, you deployed to afghanistan in 2013 as part of the army surgeon general's mental health advisory team nine can can Mm -hmm. you can you expand on that a little bit what what the heck is that all about
1: Sure, it sounds cool. It's not as cool as it is. Um, <laughs> uh, so every couple, one to two years, there'll be a team of research psychologists along with some, perhaps a social worker or a clinician that are hand-selected to deploy to um, over the last couple of decades, Afghanistan or Iraq, typically. We had a few Af- or deployments to Africa as well across the teams um, to conduct a study in theater on the mental health and experience of our service members. Um, to understand what that is like, and then to use that information to better inform how we enable them to be at their best in those situations, and also how we help them transition back um, to non-combat, you know, duty. And so, I was on the ninth iteration of that in 2013. Um, It was a a joint effort, and we were able to study both leadership and mental health, which leadership is one of my areas of expertise, so that was great fun for me. We were not allowed to leave. Like, we literally did the research in theater. So I traveled around quite a bit. I did focus groups. I I heard directly from people from every single level. And my ticket out was to brief General Milley in his situation room, actually, which is an interesting story, um, before I could leave. And it was when he was the commander um, for task force for Afghanistan at the time. So, you know, that was the ticket out. And then we got to come home and brief the entire chain up through Congress when we returned. Because it's, it's a very big deal. You cannot do your job physically if you are not mentally present to do it.
0: No, and, when you explain it, it makes perfect sense. Just didn't mm-hmm. know it went on. Yeah. Um, glad so those, it, glad it does.
1: So They're doing research. It's oftentimes behind the scenes, but it's directly informing policy and strategy.
0: Okay. And you can't uh, say to a interviewer, oh, that's an interesting story, and then leave it there. You have to, <laughs> you have to tell the interesting story of briefing General Milley.
1: Well, I think the interesting story is always just as a I was literally six months into service um, and got thrown into Afghanistan as an expert in leadership. So, yes, I briefed General Milley, who, you know, has a few years of service under his belt and it's quite accomplished um, in Afghanistan on how to be a better leader. So that's fun. But we were I think we were given, you know, about 30 minutes and he let us stick around for about 90 minutes because he he viewed the topic that we were talking about so in, so important, right, in terms of a priority. And it was really at a time when the military was starting to take mental health seriously in a different sort of way. Um, and so it was it was a phenomenal experience to be able to sit in that room and say, like, these are the ways that we can start improving the life of our soldiers so that they can do their jobs better and get through this in a meaningful way so that we can reduce some of those incidences on the back end. Um, whether it be mental health and depression or all the way to more extremes of death by suicide. Right. Um, and so interesting experience in terms of, Hey, I'm, I'm only a few months in here. I have a PhD, but like, geez, I'm briefing the person in charge on how to do their job better, I guess you could say, uh, but equally doing it in the situation room in Afghanistan. Right. That's, that's uh, a very unique
0: uh, As you're thinking as well. like, who, who am I to t- tell you? So, but uh, the very interesting, um, Nathan, you have to tell me if you can discuss this or not, um, but I did not know that there was a, a military-civilian transition office at DOD. Are, are you able to explain to veteran radio listeners what that's about?
2: Yeah. it's um, If they've gone through it or are about to go through it, it is the office that handles both the transition assistance program, the TAP, and the Yellow Ribbon reintegration program for the reservists and guardsmen. The two were merged about a year ago because they realized uh, the work for both of them is similar. A lot of the research that can support both um, is interchangeable and was trying to get uh, a force multiplying effect. The office was created in 2011 um, when the interagency approach was stood up by the president, when the unemployment rate was very high for veterans, the suicide rate was very high. The TAP itself began in the 1990s, and it's no secret to say that by then it was death by PowerPoint. Um, When they saw the (laughs) unemployment numbers, the suicide numbers, um, they realized more had to be done. So the president brought together every agency that touches on the veterans' lives. DOD and DA being in the lead, but also DOL, Small Business Administration, Department of Education, Agriculture has a strong program, and regular meetings are held from the secretarial level down to working groups that address um, how the curriculum is designed. Um, And they rebooted the curriculum rapidly and came out with a whole new approach, um, one that's now substantiated by research. Um, best practices are pulled from anywhere and integrated into the curriculum. There's always a concern about what's the best way to teach 18- to 20-year-olds because that is a big population that's uh, leaving and needs to get the information. Do they prefer it all online or is there still a place for brick and mortar? And the group meets regularly and the curriculum is updated repeatedly. There's nothing in there that's older than two years old. Um, LinkedIn was added to it when that became a big factor for Uh, job searching and all the agencies contribute personnel um, and their areas of expertise to improve not just the curriculum which is the most prominent part of it but just all the services that they offer to the members so the DOL American Job Centers um, are taking part in that agriculture. um, SBA has entrepreneur advisors in every county across the nation who work one-on-one with the veterans to help them if you're interested in agriculture, the energy industry, Department of Ag and Department of Energy has programs and resources. Uh, it was a massive effort that was stood up. Um, the people in the Air Force said, you know, they are building the bomber and fixing it as it's flying. So it's a, it was a big effort that came together and it's constantly being redone and improved every, every day.
0: Well, that, again, one of those things that's being done behind the scenes, most of us in the real world wouldn't know about it, but glad to learn about it and glad to know that that's actually occurring so that, that our men and women who are transitioning out have as much support in doing that as, as possible. So, uh, Nathan, thanks for giving us a, uh, a thumbnail explanation of what, uh, what work is being done out of that office.
2: And to add one statement to that, to follow up on I mean, what you just said, is there are all these incredible programs that are out there, um, but the veteran and their family has to be the one to take ownership of the transition process. We get suggestions and complaints that, um, you know, why isn't more being offered to them? Um, they really do have to own the future of their life and the process. There's these resources, but they won't be handed to the person on a silver platter. It's up to the vet to and the service member to take the time while they're in uniform to go to the centers, to the websites, to avail themselves of all the expertise that's out there and to engage in, particularly do the process of um, self-analysis of what is it that motivates them, what are they looking to do when they leave the military, and to do some of the, the legwork like what Kristen did when she got into it to figure out what would be a good um, occupational fit and then how do you get to that occupation. There's great es- experts but you have to go to them.
0: Yeah you have to you have to search it out and unfortunately uh, oftentimes these are young men uh, who aren't thinking in that direction you know they, they haven't done that very well in terms of searching out the next step. Uh, that's why we often hear on here on veterans radio it's the spouse who gets involved and said well he came home and said nobody told him anything when in reality there's all kinds of resources available you have to take the time to go uh find them and that's uh that's good advice uh to those currently in the in the military and even veterans once they get out there's so many available resources to help you and i think um uh, that's the message you're, you're communicating to us here. And I really appreciate the extra time that I was able to squeeze out of uh, Dr. Nathan Anspenn and Dr. Kristen Sabo uh, today to talk to veteran radio listeners not only about uh, military veteran employment uh, and their book, A Guide for the Data-Driven Leader, but, but also about uh, some uh, of their experiences in the military or their or the offices for which they uh, know at uh, DOD. Uh, Nathan and Kristen, thank you for taking the time this afternoon to talk to Veterans Radio. Thank you. It was our
2: honor. Thank you so much.
0: And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at one 800 693 Four They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, Eisenhower Center, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook, go to veteransradio.net, and support our efforts. And until next time, you are dismissed.
1: This episode is made possible by PWC.